Hi, I'm Jan. And I'm Lynn. Welcome to the Lamplighters podcast. Lamplighters is a community that encourages women to grow in our faith through the study of God's Word. We are grateful to be on the journey with you this year as we travel through the Bible following stories of some of the women who have impacted our faith. Now, last week, we studied two women whose faith led them in opposite directions because of the opposite objects of their faith. And they were opposite. Very opposite. (laughs) This week, we're going to begin a three-week study of a very fascinating woman who became the queen of Persia. She grew in her faith and was ultimately used by God to save his people. So, Jan, where do you want to start? Well... This week, we are jumping actually into the middle of the story, Yeah. right? So we're going to go back up because there's a lot of background that helps us understand the characters and the action that's going on in the book of Esther. It reads like a historical novel. I love those. I know. And (laughs) I encourage everybody to go back and read chapters one through three because it really adds to the fullness and the depth of what we're going to study. We're going to pick up in chapter four today, but that is really good background. Okay, the first thing I want to say about Esther, which is something everybody is going to notice, is that it is unique in all of Scripture. It does not mention God one time. Hmm. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that God is absent. In fact, the entire book is about God's sovereignty and God's providence. This is already starting off interesting. (laughs) So you mentioned sovereignty and providence, and those are two of those big churchy kind of words that get thrown around with the assumption that everyone knows what they mean. Now, I think I know what they mean, but why don't you go ahead and define them just to make sure we're we're all starting out on the same foot? I think that's a great idea because I even think I know what they mean, and I'm not really sure sometimes. Got it. Okay. They're the foundation, not just of the book, but really of our faith. So it's good to understand them. God's sovereignty, sovereignty means supreme power and authority. Mm -hmm. And I found a verse that kind of sums it up for me. It's out of Isaiah 46, 11, where God says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Mm -hmm. Meaning he has the power and authority to do what he says he will do, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, providence is a little more amorphous for me. It just means the protective guardianship and care provided by God. It's the way God interacts in the universe, usually through ordinary events and ordinary people. And it includes God's perfect timing, which Mm -hmm. we're going to see a lot of in the book of Esther. So God's sovereignty and providence are the overarching and also the underlying themes in Esther. It's the thread that ties everything together. Mm -hmm. Now, one other word, just because God is silent does not mean he is absent. Silence, as we all know, sometimes Mm -hmm. speaks more eloquently than words. So look for actions in this book that you know are consistent with who God has revealed himself to be. So we kind of have to look at it sideways if you want to think of it that way. Okay, well, those are two great definitions, and thanks for the heads up as we move forward. Okay, we're going to, you know me, we're going to go back for the historical context, right, before we start on the book of Esther. Mm -hmm. So from where we left last week with good old Jezebel and Mm -hmm. Ahab and the widow of Zarephath, we have moved forward in history about 500 years, so a considerable amount of time. The 10 northern tribes of Israel have been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. They were taken 
captive, and they were dispersed. So they disappeared from the pages of history. Those are the 10 missing tribes, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Sometimes you'll hear that phrase. The Assyrian Empire was then defeated by the Babylonians, hang on, who captured the two southern tribes that were left and carried them off into exile for 70 years. While all that was going on, the Babylonian Empire was, in turn, defeated by the Persians, Cyrus the Great, who Mm -hmm. allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. However, some opted to stay where they were for a variety of reasons, and that explains why we find Jews in Susa and throughout the whole Persian Empire. Okay. It's why Mordecai and Esther were in a position to get swept up in the events that is recounted in the book of Esther. Okay. So, now let us come up to speed on the book of Esther itself. The first three chapters— are just crammed with drama and power and romance and intrigue. Um, And you can think of them outlined this way. The party in the palace, the pageant preliminaries, the pageant and the prize, and finally the plot. And I did not make those up myself. I quoted somebody else, but now I can't remember who it was. Um, So in addition to this general outline of the story, we are introduced to the main characters. Okay. Ahasuerus. Or Xerxes. Ahasuerus is Hebrew. Xerxes is the Persian name. I'm going to call him Xerxes. Neither are either to pronounce, easy to pronounce. I know, but I like to say yes. Xerxes. Xerxes it starts with an X. Yeah. Anyway, he was a tyrant, and he wielded absolute power. He was ruthless, petty, proud, insecure, easily manipulated by those around him, which we will see in this story. He was also volatile, suspicious, of everyone, um, he made decisions uh, in the heat of the moment without thinking them through, mm. and he was brutal beyond our ability to comprehend. We just don't have anything in our in ourselves that thinks of that. He also had a lavish lifestyle that we cannot even begin to imagine. So here we have a guy who is at the pinnacle of his power. He ruled over a vast empire that— um, spread from modern-day Iran all the way west to Libya and included parts of northern Greece. It was 2.1 million square miles and had 50 million people. That's almost hard to I know, you can't even imagine Grab that. onto. The thing to remember is there were 1 million Jews mm. in his empire, okay? Yeah, okay. So that's Xerxes. Then we have Haman, who was kind of a prime minister. He had tremendous power, too, given to him by the king. He was also like his master. He was proud and greedy and ruthless and manipulative and without <laughs> These pity. are the worst characteristics oh, for a leader. This is the villain you love to yes, hate, right? exactly. I mean, you always hear boo hiss every time yeah. he comes on stage. Right. Now, there's an interesting historical note tied to Haman, and it just shows how God weaves things together. Mm-hmm. Agag, right, mm-hmm. was king of the Amalekites, remember, way back. They were ancient enemies of the Jews going all the way back to the Exodus. Okay. So we're talking thousands of years here. Yeah. Saul, King Saul, the first one, had been sent to destroy the Amalekites, but he left King Agag alive. Mm, I remember this. Yeah. And Saul's partial obedience mm-hmm. by leaving him alive left a remnant to hate the Jews and be their sworn enemies down through time. And guess who was an Amalekite, a descendant of Agag? 
Haman. Haman. Oh, Haman. Yes. See how the story comes together. Yes, anyway, um, we'll learn more about his heritage a little bit later. Okay, so in spite of everything that Xerxes had in this giant empire that he was ruling, he wasn't content. He wanted more. Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, we found out with Jezebel mm-hmm. last week. He wanted Greece. So when we first see him, he's trying to raise support for a war to conquer Greece. So he invites his commanders and his allies to a war council. Now, everyone plans for a war this way, right? He threw a 180-day party. (laughs) And instead of a war council, it was more of a frat party anyway. At the climax of this 180-day party, he had a feast to celebrate his power and wealth and impress his potential allies, right? Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, in a drunken stupor probably, he demanded that his queen appear. Vashti, the queen, Mm -hmm. refused, rightfully so. That was against court etiquette. He overreacted because he was embarrassed in front of his Mm -hmm. friends. Who of us has not done that? And he banished her. Mm. Now, those were critical decisions, and they were defining moments for both Xerxes and Vashti, as well as it turns out to the Jewish people. By removing Vashti, the way was paved for Esther. Mm. And we can see sideways God moving history forward. So Xerxes went off and attempted to conquer Greece, and he was defeated decisively. Hmm. So he retreated to the palace, and he pounded. He didn't get what he wanted. He was (laughs) depressed. He was probably not real pleasant to be around. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, his personal aides were going, what what, what are we going to do? The king's not happy, and if the king's not happy, nobody's happy, right? So they come up with this great idea. They appeal to his senses. They know him really well. So they said, let's have a beauty pageant. And we'll find the next queen. Okay. Because they knew it would appeal to him, right? Yes, I swear, yes. Seriously. So the king's men scoured the entire empire for the most beautiful virgins, and they brought them to Susa, which was the capital city mm-hmm. where Xerxes was. Now, the plan was they would go through a year of harem training, which you can only imagine what that is. Mm-hmm. And then Xerxes would try them out one by one and then pick a queen. Now, that's easy, right? <laughs> Well, I don't know if I would say easy. You know, everything about this story is so extreme. You've got extreme wealth, extreme power, extreme ruthlessness, extreme manipulation. Mm-hmm. You know, I choose to believe that God uses the most and the least, the best and the worst as ways to show his power over everything and everyone. Because he's sovereign. Yes. It just proves that nothing is too much for God. And everything that leads up to Xerxes' need for a new queen shows how God can use any situation and any people throughout time to accomplish his plan. You know, as we've said many times before, you just can't make this stuff up. You you can't. It reads like a soap opera. Yeah. Um, Anyway, at that point, we are introduced to two more main characters in these first three chapters. Mordecai, who is a Jew who lived in Susa and had brought up his cousin, Esther, Mm -hmm. after she became an orphan. They had a very close relationship. Esther, who is a Persian name, name, meaning star. Also, Hadassah, which is the Hebrew, means fragrant myrtle. Mm -hmm. It's appropriate because she's the star of the story, right? And the text tells us she was lovely in form and features. And we see that 
that develops in her personality going through the story. She gets swept up in the king's search for a queen. But, and this is important to remember for the story, no one knows that both she and Mordecai are Jews. Mm -hmm. So apparently they have adopted enough of the Persian culture that they can successfully conceal their identity uh, as Jews. And they weren't the only ones. Right. So that they just didn't stand out. Mm -hmm. They had figured out how to straddle both of those cultures, but they appeared more Persian than Jewish. Mm Mm-hmm. So time goes by. Uh, she goes to concubine training school filled with beauty regimens and lessons on court etiquette and all that. And then one by one, each version goes to the king for her audition. One by one, they are sent off to a different um, harem building, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the next version, <laughs> virgin enters the king's chambers. It makes me laugh just to think about it. Anyway, I'm sure Xerxes loved it. But through God's providence, Esther wins the favor of the king, and he chooses her to be queen. Mm -hmm. So clearly, God wanted Esther in the palace. Xerxes may have seen her body, but God saw her heart and the woman he was going to shape her to be. And that is a key difference Mm -hmm. in many of these stories that we have studied this year. Okay, so Esther's in the queen's palace. Mordecai, in the meantime, is at the king's gate as some sort of court official, probably because of Esther. Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate Xerxes. He sent word to Esther, who reported the plot to the king, giving Mordecai credit. Mm -hmm. The plotters were hanged, and this entire event was recorded in the king's journal. This is important because it comes back later as a very integral part of the story. Okay. Okay. About this time, the king elevates Haman, remember, Buhiz, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and commands that all court officials would kneel and honor Haman. Oh, boy. That's, uh, okay. I can sort of see where this might be going. Yeah, probably at the suggestion of Haman, right? Yeah, right. Well, you know who refused. Mm -hmm. Mordecai. Haman was infuriated. Somehow or another, he ferreted out that Mordecai was a Jew. Mm. And Haman became determined to destroy not only Mordecai for the insult, but all of the Jews in the Persian Empire, those ancient enemies of the Amalekites, Mm -hmm. right? He hated them. And this is where his heritage from Agag comes in. So through lying, once again, Haman convinced the king to give Haman the power to carry out this genocide. And he picked a date by casting lots, Mm -hmm. but throwing dice. Right. The couriers took that edict far and wide, and unbeknownst to Xerxes, his signet ring had signed the death warrant for his own wife. Right. So the stage is set for the next act of the drama. Any questions so far? Well, (laughs) I'm not sure I have specific questions. It's just more that I'm trying to keep up. I know, it's a lot. Okay, this is certainly a story that shows how any good thing you do can have can become evil when it's used as an idol, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not just having money, but loving money has become an obsession that cannot be quenched. Power that could have been used for good instead resulted in abuse that was definitely cruel and unusual. Mm-hmm. And the ego and the self-importance and the belief that they are above all others has led these men down a slope so slippery that they can't stop it. 
Well, they don't even think they're on no, a slope. No, even though it's a story we are unlikely to relate to, it certainly has warnings that are still applicable for us today. Yes, you know, remember the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely yeah. And what we have here is an intimate glimpse into absolute power. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're now down to chapters four and five of the book of Esther, finally. <laughs> <laughs> That's great background, though. We needed all that. It, really. Okay, so we could entitle these chapters inflection points, if you want to be fancy and use a big word. Um An inflection point is a time of significant change in a situation, or in plain English, you reach a turning point, Mm -hmm. a a fork in the road. And whichever way you choose, you can't go back. It's irrevocable. So chapter four is the defining moment for Esther. Mm. King Xerxes has been manipulated by Haman into basically tossing away an entire element of his kingdom without really any thought. Mm -hmm. And we're talking one million people here, right? It's it's not a a small number. So today we begin with Mordecai's very public mourning over this. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He was openly weeping and wailing Mm -hmm. at the king's gate. Um, And he was grieving because of the danger to God's people but also because his refusal to bow to Haman had caused that danger. Yeah. He felt personally responsible. In fact, all the Jews of the empire were mourning with Mordecai. So we can see God's fingerprints in verse 3, mm-hmm. the reference to fasting, weeping, and wailing for the Jews. This is an echo of the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, where it says, Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Mm. So the secular Jews in the Persian Empire were returning to their God Mm. through this mourning process process. It was a turning point for them. Yeah, They were grieving not only for the impending disaster, but because of their wandering from the Lord. Mm. So they've had a turning point. So meanwhile, Esther, who is walled up in the queen's palace, right? She mm-hmm. doesn't have freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. Her servants, though, kept her connected. Okay, And her servants <laughs> reported Mordecai's very strange behavior to the queen. And her first response was like most of us. I'll fix it. (laughs) Let me send him clothes. That'll solve the problem. (laughs) Mordecai refuses, Mm -hmm. and she decides, maybe I should figure out what's really going on, right? And so she's clueless, except by the information that her eunuchs and her servants bring her. Mm -hmm. So what follows is this really kind of humorous uh, back-and-forth communication between Mordecai and Esther via this eunuch. It's kind of like watching a tennis match. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mordecai? Esther, Mordecai, (laughs) Esther. It goes back and forth. Now, Mordecai is very careful to communicate with Esther in a way that she will believe him. Okay. Sends a verbal message. Um, He he gives accurate details. He even sends a copy of the order to her Mm. because he needs her to understand not only the facts, but the implication of the facts. And then he tells her to go see the king, which put Esther between a rock and... And a hard place. Mm-hmm. Now, Mordecai is still acting as her father here, yeah. as her parent. Yeah. You know, because he's the Giving one who her raised instructions, her. yeah. Right. 
telling her what to do. Mm-hmm. But court protocol required that she have an invitation from the king in order to enter his presence. And he hadn't sent for her for 30 days. Oh. We don't know why. Yeah. But it's been a long time. So to simply appear risks death. Mm-hmm. Remember remember Xerxes' character? Yeah. yeah remember Vashti? Yeah. Well, she does too. <laughs> Esther does too. Yeah. So she has reason to fear and reason to decline Mordecai's order. Mm-hmm. But Mordecai's last communication with her was extremely clear, and it's one of the best examples of God's providence in all of the Bible. You may be familiar with that verse. Mordecai reminds Esther, he says, look, being in the royal court won't save you. You're a Jew. You won't be exempt from this order. If you remain silent, you're doomed, and help will come from another quarter for the Jews. Mm-hmm. And then he adds the clincher. You've been placed where you are for exactly this time. This is why you were carried into concubine school. This is why you're married to that pagan autocrat. This is why you were chosen to be queen. So Mordecai is laying before Esther a bigger plan for her life mm-hmm. than she ever thought. Yeah. Um, a bigger vision that mm-hmm. God is preparing her for. So at that point, Esther arrives at the fork mm-hmm. in the road. It's the defining moment of her life, and she's presented with this huge dilemma. She's been brought to this point by circumstances totally beyond her control. She can continue to go with the flow and live as a pagan in the king's court unless, you know, till she's executed. Mm-hmm. Or she can choose to identify with God's people and admit she's a Jew. If she does this, she paints a huge target on her chest for all of the court intrigue and all of the enemies that are always inside of a palace, right? Mm-hmm. And if that's if the king doesn't execute her for coming to him. Right. Right. So her life is in danger either way. Mm-hmm. And her decision she knows, will be irrevocable. So the chapter ends very simply with her asking Mordecai and the Jews of Susa to fast for and with her, which to the Old Testament Jew means pray. It doesn't say that here, but that's what it means to Old Testament Jews. They're going to do that for three days, and she says, after that, I'll go to the king. So she's made her choice. And regardless of the consequence, she's going to commit herself to a course of action Without knowing the outcome, mm-hmm. she's going to be faithful to step forward. Notice she's exchanging roles with Mordecai. Mordecai no longer gives her orders. She's giving him orders. Mm, yeah. So we see that development of her faith becoming central to her life. So she is in the process of becoming truly the woman, the, the queen that God created her to be. Yeah, I love this. It's so great to watch the way Mordecai and Esther develop over the course of this story. Because as you've pointed out, Mordecai starts out in charge and giving orders because he knows he has nothing to lose. (laughs) Clearly, his lifelong influence over Esther has put him in the right place at the right time. He has the queen's ear and her attention. But as you see Esther come into her own, Mordecai willingly steps back and follows her lead. The power that each of them has is used appropriately and for the good. It has not become an idol to either of them. And, you know, then we have Esther. You know, I really appreciate that we don't see her jump in with both feet at the beginning. I mean, it's it's self-preservation, isn't it? And it's one of the strongest motivators we all have. It's built into us. But she is able to step away 
from looking only at what is best for her and to see that she has the chance to use her power and influence to actually save her people, not just herself. She sees that the risk is worth the possible reward. She's brave in a way that comes from outside of herself, I think. It clearly can only come from God and the Holy Spirit. So now we begin to see the plan unfold. Esther has developed into a humble and wise woman who exquisitely planned and executed a very detailed campaign to intercede for her people. She dressed in her royal robes, not just dressed up, but Mm -hmm. she dressed in her royal robes to go to the king. Mm -hmm. And she stood outside in the courtyard until she was noticed. It it was a subtle way of reminding Xerxes not only that she was his wife, but that she was his queen. Mm -hmm. And it allowed him the ability to initiate the action. It was a very quiet way of asking permission, Mm -hmm. very respectful of him. And Xerxes held his scepter out to her in invitation. So God had been going ahead of her, preparing the way for her to enter the throne room. So when Xerxes welcomed his queen, he gave her what sounds like a blank check. Ask for anything you want up to half my kingdom. And we'll find that in the New Testament, too. Mm-hmm. That was just an oriental way of saying, I, I love you. You can have what you want, mm-hmm. right? But Esther knew he didn't literally mean that. Yeah. And this is where we see her wisdom. She didn't interpret this offer as an open door by God for her to ask for Haman's head on a platter. Mm -hmm. She sweetly invited her husband instead and her enemy to a meal, which she had prepared in advance, Mm -hmm. in her own royal apartments. And they came. Mm -hmm. Xerxes, entranced by Esther's beauty and humility and the mystery surrounding her, asked, because he clearly knew she wanted something, (laughs) Right. right? right? It was utterly charming. So at the meal... Esther declined to to give her ask a second time and extended an invitation to a second banquet. Mm -hmm. Clearly, like Abigail, Esther knew the value of banquet diplomacy. Mm -hmm. You see that a lot. She had the patience to wait on God's timing. Xerxes wasn't ready to be ambushed by the treachery of his prime minister. But you can bet he was intrigued, Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't dare miss the next banquet, right? Mm -hmm. So the rest of the chapter reveals Haman's prideful rage and how how he turned to his wife for counsel and mm-hmm. his friends and uh, to to figure out how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And they convinced him that he needed to execute Mordecai publicly. Mm. Now, we've talked frequently about the influence wives have on husbands, but yes. this clearly was not a wise counselor. No. It's no. kind of like Ahab and Jezebel. Mm-hmm. He... he surrounded himself with people who weren't helping him. Right. Anyway, Esther's suspended ask and Haman's suspended revenge builds tension and intrigue so that we leave you with a cliffhanger until next week. (laughs) Not much of one, but a little one. Okay, so do you have an application that you want to leave us with this week? Well, I mean, I think I want us to really spend some time thinking about what we need to do to enable us to obey in the face of fear, you know, because it's never an easy thing. I think if you think about it ahead of time and have sort of an action plan, it might be helpful. And, you know, hopefully everyone's going to say, pray, <laughs> seek, seek First, wise counsel, yeah, seek wise counsel. spend some time thinking about that. Yeah. Um, well, 
not many of us, honestly, are in uh, positions of power like Esther was, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we, but that said, we all have spheres of influence. And all of those spheres of influence have come as gifts from God. So this is what I want us to pray over and ponder and explore in the coming days. God's providence is active in all of our lives all the time. Mm-hmm. So the question to ask and answer is where has he placed you at this time and for what purpose? Mm. That's a good one. Um, thanks, Jan, for all of this background mm. to get us into this story. And it's going to be fun looking forward for these next two weeks. The rest of the story. That's right. Until next time. <laughs>